normal Dunkin' Donuts, but I like the Munchkins, you know? They don't all taste the same. Adam, don't. Mm -mm. How dare you? Krispy Kreme is just like nothingness. Just like it's just like air. Yeah. Yeah. Krispy Kreme's conspiracy. <coughs> Duck Donuts is probably the top. Yeah. Duck Donuts is terrible. <laughs> That's like saying, yeah, I, don't know, I can't even like compute what what would have to go on in your thought process to think that Duck Donuts is a bad donut. Too much? Well, you're just getting the wrong donut. It's like. All right. Anyway. Anyway. Hey, so a few weeks ago, before the snow and before soaping, we started a series on the wisdom literature. That consists of what? Three books. Those three books are? Good job. It worked. Oh, I didn't click on the thing. But basically, basically, these three books are all seeking to answer one question. Does anyone remember what that question is? I'm going to let Adam take this one. What does it mean to live the good life? Huh? No, I thought you'd get it right. Sure. Um, so what does it mean to live the good life? I want you to take a second and rem see if you can remember what Proverbs, how did Proverbs answer that question? What did Proverbs say? If you want to live a good life, how did it summarize how to live the good life? Talk amongst your table, figure out. What does it mean to live the good life based on Proverbs? All right, what did you guys get for this one, Adam? Shh. A healthy fear of the Lord. Okay, anyone else? Caroline? Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. That is definitely the answer. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's like a healthy respect, right? It's not being scared of God. That's not like the key to wisdom or the good life. It's having a healthy respect of his authority. So that's, that's good. That's where we will kind of head in that's the direction we will head in today, kind of unpacking that more. But So Proverbs kind of sought to unpack this good foundation of if you want to live the good life, you're going to have to fear the Lord and obey his commands. It talked about the moral logic of kind of the universe where your desires will create a new character and your character will lead to consequences. That is kind of like a general rule of life. Based on how you live your life, it will create a new virtues or a type of character, type of person that you're going to be, and then that's going to lead to a series of consequences in your life. So if you want to live the good life, you'll need to submit to God's definitions of good and evil and obey what he says. 
So with this in mind, we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Anyone ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Anyone? Oh, wow, this is going to be a trip. Because Ecclesiastes, I'll tell you this, Ecclesiastes is probably one of the hardest books to understand rightly and to read well. We're going to do it (laughs) in 40 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe 25. We'll see what happens. But what I want you to do is grab your Bible, because this is the best way to understand Ecclesiastes. Grab your Bible, pull out your Bible app on your phone. This is going to be critical. Okay? Around your table, what I want you to do is go to the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. Should be around the middle of your Bible. There's a table of contents also at the beginning of your Bible. Where's your Bible, Jack? Yeah, Jack, you can't make fun of people not knowing where the book is when you don't have the Bible. Huh? Ecclesiastes. Starts with an E, ends with Ecclesiastes. So we're going to go to chapter 1, okay, and around your table, this is what I want you to do. I want you to read verses 2 through 11, okay? And then I want you to discuss what you think this Bible, what, what you think this book is doing in the Bible. Like, why in the world is this book in the Bible? So go ahead, read verses 2 through 11, and then um, answer what is this book doing in the Bible. Go. Hopefully you got somewhere, but we're going to go ahead and read this great passage together. Vanity of vanities. What does the word vanity mean? Anyone know? It's like, that's a, that's a, some, that's vain a little bit. That's, that's somewhat of the meaning. Um, but it's like, uh, it has some sense of like meaninglessness. Like, all is kind of meaning. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit. But vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Some of your translations may have said futile. Like, everything's futile. Like, there's no purpose. And you guys know what the word futile means? It's like, you know, sounds like something an astronaut would say. Like, Operation Futile. Like, not working. Um, but all is vanity. It's like, okay. This is weird. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. 
there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Super encouraging, right? Right? It's like the world goes on, it ticks without you, you're going to be forgotten. Merry Christmas. <laughs> it is very weird that we like landed on this book like the Sunday before Christmas, but um, that's where we're at. So what do you guys think this book is doing in the Bible? What do you think is happening here? Why is this book in the Bible? What did you guys come up with? Jack? You're just saying what Ethan said? Okay, okay, I'm just making sure. I want to make sure credit is due to where it's due. But anyone else? Caroline? Hmm. Okay, so it's kind of like a pointed attack towards Israel's idolatry is what you're saying. Okay. So what I think, okay, Emma? YOLO, you only live once. That's, that's the Ecclesiastes. Yeah, so we're going to dive into this book, and it is going to be difficult. It's going to be very interesting. But if you just look at some portions of Ecclesiastes, this is a lot of the tone that you get. You get kind of this depressing, very realistic, dry feel. And it's important because it's one of the perspectives that you're going to have to have if you're going to live a wise life. Remember, so like, um, wisdom literature is made up of three different perspectives, and this is one of them that we're going to have to combat with. So Proverbs kind of gave us that balanced general rule of life. Like if you seek God, good things are going to happen. You'll be a virtuous person. Well, Ecclesiastes is kind of going to push back against that and give some of the exceptions to that. But this is a very valuable lesson. It tells us that Scripture wants us to interact with the text. Right? You guys get what I mean by that? We want to interact with the text. We don't simply want to just read it and just see what it says, identify what it says. We want to interact with it. And this is particularly true of wisdom literature and the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is supposed to do something to you. It's supposed to, like, stir you up. It's supposed to, like, unsettle you a little bit. So you're supposed to kind of interact, participate in what Scripture's doing. Look at this verse from Proverbs. And tell me what's, how you're supposed to respond to this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So tell me, are you supposed to answer a fool or are you supposed to not answer a fool? Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what the text is doing. It's giving you kind of a paradox, or like two opposites, and it's wanting you to interact with it. It's wanting you to respond to it. The, one, the writer wants you to reflect, to pause, to meditate, to stop and actually think. Not just read it, memorize it, and be able to recite it. It wants you to think through what it is saying. Okay? So this is very important for the book of Ecclesiastes. Even as we go through the lesson today, um, it's beneficial for you to kind of get this outline. I gave you guys a handout with like a whole outline, front and back, kind of what we're going to go over. But it's very important that you don't simply just take this outline, this teaching, and like, okay, I got Ecclesiastes. More so, it would be more beneficial if you read the whole book of Ecclesiastes and let it kind of happen to you. Let kind of your um, 
your time be spent in like slow meditation of of the text. So anyway, what we're going to do, we're going to watch the Bible Project video, and it'll kind of summarize Ecclesiastes for us well, and then I'll come back, and we'll we'll start to kind of go through this towards a way of understanding how this helps us answer how to live the good life. You got it, Ethan? Thank you. We're exploring three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And they're all asking the question, what does it mean to live well in this world? So we've looked at Proverbs, who you could think of as a bright young teacher. She's all about pursuing wisdom, an attribute of God that's woven into reality. And she's optimistic that if you use wisdom, you will build a successful life. But then we come to Ecclesiastes, who's more like this sharp middle-aged critic. And he says, You think using wisdom will bring you success. You'd better think again, because life here under the sun is meaningless. And that's a phrase he uses a lot in this book. But to understand this book, we have to realize first that we're hearing two voices. So first there's the teacher, and we've been calling him the critic. He's the main voice in the book. But he is introduced to us by another figure, the author. And he's the one who's collected the critic's words, and then at the end of the book summarizes everything and gets the final word. So why does the author want us to hear from the critic? Well, he wants to turn your view of the world upside down, and he's going to let the critic explore three really disturbing things about the world. And we should warn you, these are pretty intense. Yeah. So the first is the march of time, or as the critic says, Generations come and generations go, but the earth, it's been here long before us and will be long after. No one remembers people from long ago, and all the people yet to come, they too will be forgotten by those who come after them. And so, on a cosmic scale, you and I, we are just a blip. Stars are born, and then they die and form planets which orbit new stars, and those planets, they change over time and eventually burn up. And amidst this cosmic backdrop, my entire existence is like a blink in time. Which leads to the critic's second disturbing observation, that we are all going to die. Humans face the same fate as the animals, death. All people, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, those who offer sacrifices to God and those who do not, they all share the same destiny. All this activity and madness, then we all join the dead. Man, this book is depressing. And so is the final disturbing thing for the critic, and that is life's random nature. So in Proverbs, life isn't random. There's a clear cause and effect relationship between doing the right thing and being rewarded. But the fact is that life doesn't always work that way. The critic has observed a glitch in the system. He calls it chance, or in his words, The race doesn't always go to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food always come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the educated. Time and chance happen to them all. So his point is that you can't really control anything in life. It's just way too unpredictable. So if I want to master life... Then you're setting yourself up for a fall. Now throughout the book, the critic uses a metaphor to tie together all of these disturbing ideas. Nearly 40 times he says that everything in life is hevel. It's a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor 
like smoke, life is beautiful and mysterious. It takes one shape, and before you know it, it takes a new shape. And smoke looks solid, but try and grab it, it'll slip right through your fingers. And when you're stuck in the thick of it, like fog, it's impossible to see clearly. Now, our modern translations have lost the metaphor, and they usually translate hevel as meaningless. But if you read closely, the critic isn't saying that life has no meaning, but rather that its meaning is never clear. Like smoke, life is confusing, it's disorienting and uncontrollable. So what are we supposed to do with all of it? Well, surprisingly, the critic first of all acknowledges the perspective of Proverbs. He says it's a really good idea to learn wisdom and to live in the fear of the Lord. Really? I mean, he just said that doesn't guarantee success. But he knows it's the right thing to do. But secondly, and more often, he says that since you can't control your life, you should stop trying. Learn to hold things with an open hand because you really only have control over one thing, and that's your attitude towards the present moment. Stop worrying, he says, and choose to enjoy a good conversation with a friend, or the sun on your face, or a good meal with people that you care about. The simple things in life. Yes, and both the good things and the bad, because both are rich gifts from God. And that's the surprising wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Listening to the critic is painful and can lead you into some dark places. And that's why the author speaks up at the end of the book. He doesn't want you to lose hope. He wants to make you humble into someone who trusts that life has meaning even when you can't make sense of it, that one day God will clear the heaven and bring his justice on all that we've done. And so he tells us that the proper response to all of this is to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Now there's one more voice in the Bible's wisdom literature, and that's the book of Job. And he will bring us the final, much needed perspective on our journey into wisdom. So let's, let's dive into this, just get a little bit better understanding of this book. Okay, so I gave you the handout so that you don't have to write down everything that's on the slides, but you can feel free to take notes um, alongside it or what. But as the video mentioned, as we've mentioned a few times, each kind of book of the wisdom literature is giving a different perspective, a different angle um, at answering the question of how to live a good life. And where Proverbs was kind of like the young, middle-aged, or the young, brilliant woman, um, Ecclesiastes is like the sharp, middle-aged critic who was kind of just like the Debbie Downer in the room, who like always reminds you like of the reality of life. Or it's like that person that always criticizes, like doesn't say anything positive ever. It's just like they're always just tearing things down. That's kind of the voice of Ecclesiastes. It has that, that tone that we've already read a little bit of. Structurally, there's, very, there's a very important thing that kind of causes a lot of debate about the book of Ecclesiastes, but there's two voices, and the, the video does a great job of explaining it. There's the author, and there is the teacher, or the preacher. Um, and basically, what we see is the author has taken the preacher's words and put it and compiled it in the book, and then He's going to like introduce it and then conclude it with what, how he wants the, the reader to respond to it. So the author is assuming, again, that you're going to interact with what the preacher is saying. He's not affirming everything that he's saying. He's not saying everything that he says is correct. 
He's simply wanting you to respond to it. And then lastly, the last introductory thing we need to go over is the motto of the book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. This is how the preacher in verse 2 of chapter 1 begins his whole speech, and this is how he ends it in chapter 12, verse 8. This is what he has to say, that everything in life is vanity. So we're going to talk about that word vanity, or hebel, hevel. But this is what he's saying. All is hebel. And hebel is often translated as meaningless, pointless, in our English Bibles, but a more accurate understanding, as the video showed, is that of vapor or smoke. So it's used 38 times throughout the book, and it's talking as a metaphor to talk about how life is temporary. It's fleeting, right? Just like smoke. As soon as smoke is developed, it's like running away from you. It's fleeing from you. It's dissipating. But also, it's like an, uh, an enigma or a paradox. Life is cloudy. You don't really understand what's going on in life all the times. So life is unpredictable. It's unstable. It's like chasing after the wind. So one of the things that um, we can see in this metaphor is that the main obstacle for living well in life, according to Ecclesiastes, is that we consistently refuse to accept our mortality. We refuse to accept that we are going to die that there is a finite component to our existence. And this reminds us that we are not God, right? The fact that we are going to die should remind us that we are not God. And that's a critical component to fearing the Lord, right? Understanding that you are going to die means that you are not God, which is critical for you understanding the fear of the Lord. So it's a negative way. Reminding that, you, that you're going to die is a negative way of reinforcing that you should fear God and that you can't define good and evil on your own terms. Only God can do that. So the preacher's going to show that all of life is habel, that it's smoke, and it's going to be like deconstructive. Okay, He's going to attack some of your assumptions about life. He wants to unsettle you. He wants you to not be comfortable. He wants you to come face to face with reality. And sometimes that is disturbing, but you should be unsettled. The book wants to unsettle you. That's a feeling that you're supposed to receive. So in the end, we'll see that it leads us to somewhere positive, but for most of the book, you're just feeling like your existence attacked, your way of life attacked, and that's how you're supposed to feel. So we talked about the opening poem, or we read the opening poem, and I think it's critical kind of uh, as it sets up the whole book. Okay, so the opening poem, the one that we read, what we see is the main question of the book. Verse 3 in chapter 1 says, What does it profit a man? What does all the toil profit or gain? Is there anything under the sun that is gain? That is the main question of the book. Now focus in on really specifically what he's asking. He's saying under the sun in our existence, in our world, is there anything profitable to do? Is there anything that you do on this planet, in this world, that is going to bring gain? Is anything going to last? And so the first thing he does is he talks about the world's pattern, this unstoppable pattern of how creation just keeps moving, right? The sun rises, sun goes down. Wind goes, wind comes back. The streams flow into the sea, they come out of the sea, just keep never-ending 
right? This pattern that you can't control, but it keeps happening and it's unstoppable. And he says, this mirrors our human existence. In the same way the world just keeps going on and on, your life can feel like a treadmill, right? You're on a journey that never ends. You just continue through life. You never arrive. It's like that's a, a normal human feeling that you're just constantly on a journey that never arrives. Your life is a treadmill. But basically, what this opening poem is doing is it's trying to, to settle you into this feeling that you are simply a blink or a blur that passes compared to God's creation. And it entrances one of the first major forces of the universe, and that's the inevitability or the fact of death. You are going to die. It's one of the things that you should come to grips with as a human being, as a mortal. Now, it's in this recognition. It's he realizes this, right? He realizes this is how the world works. This mirrors our human existence. So the next thing he does is he says he's going to search for satisfaction under the sun. So this is where the next part of chapter 1 entrance is. He says he's going to search out everything under the sun in the world to see if he can satisfy him. And right up front, he gives us the outcome. He says, I searched everything, searched everything that I could do, that I could put my hands to, and it's all vanity. It's all hebel. It's all vapor. It's all smoke. But yet, there's also this cautious optimism that we'll talk about a lot. He traces this restlessness that he feels, this discontent, right? You guys know what it means to be, like, discontented, like, not satisfied? He traces this. He says, this is a gift from God. He says, the fact that I'm disconnected or discontented is a gift from God. He traces it back to God's will. He says, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the sons of men to be busy with. So something about the restlessness you feel— Right? Something about the fact that no matter how many hours you put on the video game console, you're never satisfied. No matter how many likes you get on Instagram, you're never satisfied. No matter how much money you make, no matter how much pleasure you get in life, no matter how much you eat, no matter how much you work out, you will not be satisfied. And what he's saying is that is a gift from God. That restlessness you feel is by the will of God. So he's unpacking more of what that is like. So he gives us that outcome up front, front, and then he goes to start talking about the things that he pursued. What did he sample in life? You guys ever go to like Sam's Club, get the free samples? No? This is a great opportunity for a free meal every Friday. When Steph and I were in college, we would go to Sam's Club for lunch on Fridays. Just make your rounds, get a little meat, get a little fruit, cheese, Sometimes they had a specialty item that they actually, like, made. You get a whole meal at Sam's Club for free. Anyway, uh, what was I talking about? Um, okay, the sampling of life. <laughs> so basically, this guy, imagine the world as a Sam's Club, okay? He's going to go through. He's going to test a little work. He's going to test some pleasure. He's going to test some wealth. He's going to test um, some other stuff that we would seek to do to to find meaning in our life. And the first thing he tests is worldly wisdom or knowledge. He gains all this worldly wisdom. He gains all the knowledge in the world, and he just finds out that it ends in frustration and sorrow. The more he knows, the more frustrated he becomes. 
the more he understands, the more wisdom he has, the more sorrow he experiences. And so he says, this is vanity. This is hebel. Just racking up knowledge and wisdom, it is pointless. just leads to sorrow and frustration. So that then leads him to pursue pleasure. In chapter 2, said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was hebel. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards. I made myself gardens and parks, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He's just looking for happiness in fruit trees, just trying to, you know, plant all the fruit trees to try to find out how he can be satisfied. And he made himself pools from which to water the forest. He bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in his house. He has all of these things. He got singers. He got the treasure of kings. And all of this, he says, was hebel. It's meaningless. So he's tested out worldly wisdom. He's tested out pleasure. And he realizes that the more you hunt for pleasure, the less of it you find. The more you're just living to, for the highs of life, to just get that thrill, the less of it you actually find. So he comes to the summary of his search. And this is what he comes to grips with. As he reflects on this search, this sampling of life, he, ref he, he comes to one of the major forces of the universe to conclude that all of life is hell, and that's the fact of death. So death is one of the major forces of the universe that, that leads us to say, Everything done under the sun will be equalized. Everything will be leveled. And so death in particular, this is what he kind of notes it. He notes it does two things. It robs every man of his dignity. No, no matter if you're a good man, a bad man, a wise man, a fool man, foolish man, um, you will die. doesn't matter. Death will level the playing field in terms of your dignity. He says, secondly, it robs every project from its purpose. Everything you work on in life, every science fair project, will one day rot in a dump. And it will have no purpose because death will level the playing field. So your work will come to an end. And he says, even if you turn over your work to another, right, you pass down the family business to your son, your daughter, it, who knows how they're going to treat the business, how they're going to do the work. So death robs every man of his dignity, robs every project from its purpose, but it also reminds you, and this is the most important one, that you're not God. Reminds you that you are not God. And so while that sounds gloomy and depressing, the preacher is setting this up as a good reminder for us. Understanding that we will die, understanding that there is an unstoppable fact that we will die, reminds us that we're not God and this is good. And this is what turns to a glimpse of hope in the next two verses. Verses 24 through 26. I'll go ahead and read them just because it's important for us to hear this. This is what he says. After all of that, he says, There is nothing better for a, a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. From apart from him, 
Who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to the give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity, a striving after the wind. So, this is very important as we kind of set out through the rest of the book. He's giving a glimpse of hope. He's saying, yes, everything under the sun, it's toilsome, it's vanity, it's hebel, but there is a glimpse of hope. There's nothing better for you to do than to enjoy life. Oh, it was up on the screen. So, here's the two things that we can note, though, from this glimpse of hope, and we'll, we'll get more in depth as we move forward. You can find joy in your toil. You guys know what toil is? Like work, striving. You can find joy in all of this striving and all of this restlessness. And the other thing we see in this is that it's a matter of perspective. If you see life as a gift from God, if you understand that you're just a mere mortal in God's universe and that God has given you life and given this life to you, then you can enjoy the things of life. So this raises a very, very important teaching for Ecclesiastes, okay? What spoils the things of life, work, wealth, pleasure, fame, popularity, what spoils the things of life is us trying to get out of them more than they can give, right? It's not that work, wealth, companionship is bad. It's that we treat those things like gods, we treat those things in a way that they're not supposed to be treated. We don't have the perspective that they are gifts of God, from God, to us. So we, we are trying to get more out of them than they can give. That is the problem. That's what spoils the things of life. So um, I wanted to take you guys kind of through that progression because it sets up how you can read the rest of the book well. So we're not going to go, you know, chapter by chapter for the rest of the book. But what we see with the rest of the book is that it reinforces this pattern. It reinforces what we kind of saw in chapters 1 and 2. There are some other pockets that kind of give wise advice. It speaks a little more sensibly of life, talks about the value of having companionship. If you probably have ever heard the book of Ecclesiastes quoted, it's that verse about like a three-chord... Uh, three, I don't know, three chords are hard to break or something like that. You guys ever heard anything like that? Nope. Probably because I'm not quoting it right, but it's in chapter four or five. Anyway, um, so there's some sensible things. It, like, gives some advice of wisdom, but the major flavor of the book is kind of the same pattern. So what he does is he searches for significance. He pursues things like work, like wealth, popularity and pleasure. He says, I pursue all these things. And then it always lands him at this conclusion of the fact that all is hebel. And there are three forces that the video touched on that continually remind us of our mortality. It's that we will die, that time is something that is moving, whether or not we're a part of it. It's out of our control. It's like a tyrant that we can't control. And also, life is harsh, and it's random. It doesn't matter sometimes if you're good, if you're strong, if you're brilliant. Sometimes just bad times can fall on you. These things are what lead him to continually say the things we pursue under the sun in life 
our Hebel. So I would just want to read this, this passage. Ecclesiastes 5. This is just kind of to give you another sense of what uh, the preacher gets at. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is Hebel. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by the owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation or frustration and sickness and anger. Again, it's a very depressing kind of critique. It says, wealth only stirs up more trouble. More money, more problems. This is basically what Ecclesiastes says. The more money you have, the more servants you get, the more people you're feeding, the more people you're employing, the more your money gets spent elsewhere. You still can't be satisfied with it. You don't sleep well. Then, he says, you may just have a bad venture. And then you got nothing to give your family, and all goes on, and it's all just an evil. So this is just uh, underlining the whole point that this is what the rest of the book does. It searches for significance and finds it that it's all hevel in these areas of life. That one was wealth. But the important thing is that there's these glimpses of hope throughout the book. And ultimately, the book ends on this glimpse of hope. But uh, throughout the writings, he points to the positive. The preacher continually leads us to fear God and enjoy life. And all of his work of deconstructing is leading you to reconstruct things on a good foundation. So he disillusions you kind of to the false hopes of reality so that he can show you what life is really about. And this is um, something we see throughout the book. Even at that, the end of that passage that we just read, this is what he says. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given to him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So notice, he talks about all of this, you know, toil and how it's hebel, it's vapor, it's smoke, but he points forward to the fact that we can enjoy life. That's not impossible. You can enjoy life. So let's kind of uh, speed through here. We've got how to respond to the fact that you're going to die. How to respond to the fact that life is hebel. There are four things. We'll go quickly through them. Okay? Um, we won't read this passage, but the first thing that he says is, the, is that God has put eternity into man's heart. 
So the first thing to do, and according to Ecclesiastes, in realizing that life is hevel, that life is a vapor, says recognize that God has placed that eternity in your heart. Meaning the restlessness you feel in life is the product of how God has designed you for himself. So you feel restless with this life because you long for something more. You long for something that you were designed for. And so the world should be telling you that this is not your resting place. This is not where you need to find significance or meaning. Secondly, we see that the things of life are a gift from God. And this is what he says. If you view them as a gift from God, then you understand that you are a creature in the creator's universe. And that will lead you to have a fear of God, to rightly fear God. So it's by viewing things rightly, it's by seeing things as gifts from God that you can then enjoy them. You won't be able to enjoy the things of life if you don't rightly understand that they're gifts from God. Number three, enjoy life. God has gifted you with work. Work is a gift from God. That's one of the important things in Ecclesiastes. Work was given before the fall, just so you know. Wealth, food, drink, companionship, other things in life are meant to be enjoyed. So there's also an ethical component to this of doing good. Um, But this is one of the things that I think you should take from Ecclesiastes. Stop and enjoy the simple life. There are so many things we allow in life to just fly by us because we're just struggling and we're in the toil and we feel like we're on a treadmill that doesn't end. But sometimes what Ecclesiastes is saying is you just need to stop, pause, and enjoy the simplicity of life. As I was working on this this week, I was sitting at the kitchen table trying to figure out how in the world I'm going to communicate all this. And my kids are running around, Hudson and Emmy, they're chasing each other with T-Rex and dinosaurs and roaring at each other, and they're terrorizing Ruth, uh, which is our cat, and Ruth is hissing at him and everything, but as I'm, like, working on this, I just stopped, and I was like, I can enjoy this, like, the laughter of the house, the mess that's being made is something that I can pause and say, like, this is a gift from God that I can enjoy, and, and, uh, you know, I just, like, kind of stopped for my work, and we went into the room, and we just played, and that's, that's something that Ecclesiastes wants you to grip onto, is because everything under the sun, if you pursue it in the wrong way, is meaningless, if you view it as a gift from God, you can enjoy the simplicities of life. Like, I think about this at midweek all the time on Wednesdays. We're all just hanging out, we're, we're laughing, and we're opening up scripture, and, you know, we're just, that is a time where we can just enjoy it. It's like sometimes you just want to slow it down and be like, this is, this is a gift of God that we can enjoy. And that's kind of what Ecclesiastes wants you to do. So just enjoy life. This Christmas season and the hustle and bustle of life, just stop and enjoy the fact you can be with your families. You can eat great food. You can receive presents. You can celebrate this time of year and what it means for for Jesus and uh, your life. But just stop and enjoy life. Um, But number four, and this is where we get the conclusion of the book. This is what the author says after the preacher has spoken. He says, the end of the matter. All's been heard. You've heard all this whole depressing spiel. He says, this is what you have to do. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret, secret thing, whether good or evil. So this is what's happening. This is how the author is summarizing what we should do. Prepare for judgment. Since everything is 
pebble under the sun, and this points to finding our meaning in God, then this means that our lives will be judged by God and his standards. Since everything in life is given by God, everything we do in life will be judged by God. So the ordinary, day-to-day moments and things of life matter. Think about that. It's, he's kind of like tilting the whole argument on its head. He's saying if you have a perspective that everything is a gift from God, then everything matters. Everything you do will be judged. Notice how that's almost opposite of all is hebel. To say all is vapor and all will be judged is kind of a contradictory statement. But this is, again, it's like that Proverbs passage we saw at the beginning. This is, a, this is compelling us to interact with the text, to respond in it and to engage with it in a way where we're not simply memorizing it, but we're responding and interacting, participating in what it's doing. So really, how does Ecclesiastes answer how to live the good life? Fear God and keep his commandments. That's how it answers how to live the good life. The conclusion of Ecclesiastes, it's very similar to the conclusion of Proverbs. But the way the book of Ecclesiastes gets there, gets you to the point of fear God and keep his commandments, is a lot different than Proverbs does. Proverbs uplifts wisdom as this valuable thing that you have to treasure and that you have to pursue, and it gives you all this list of do's and don'ts. Ecclesiastes deconstructs everything. says, this is meaningless, this is meaningless, and it brings you to the point of God is the only one you can turn to. So, Ecclesiastes, it's a, a powerful book. I encourage you guys to go out and read it, to respond to it, to meditate over it. But it's particular in how it answers how to live the good life by emphasizing, one, our need to embrace our mortality, to understand that you will die one one day. You are a creature in the creator's universe. You need to understand that everything doesn't revolve around you, right? And also, it calls you to live joyfully in a complex world. Like, we should be able to live joyfully as Christians because we understand that everything is a gift from God. And that's that's critical component for living the good life. All right, so we ran a little long.